and I like to employ my half right, half wrong philosophy. If you think it makes a difference, buy half of it before the change and half of it after. Hello, Phylighters, and welcome to episode 14. Let's talk about I-Bonds. This is Lambo, the Phylighter, and we want to share some great information with you today. One of our goals here at the Phylighter podcast is to educate, motivate, and just share information about personal finance. And remember, we do not take any responsibility or liability for any actions you may take. Based on what you hear on this podcast or read on the blog, please consult a professional advisor. Now, with that, let's get into today's show. This is a topic I've been wanting to share with the audience for quite some time. I saw an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal about Series I savings bonds. I'm a regular reader of the journal and really enjoy the coverage and the articles there. I've read several articles over time related to the Series I. I stands for inflation uh, savings bonds. It really started to surface back uh, last year in May of 2021 when, when the rates moved up to 3.54%, which sounded like a lot. And we'll talk a lot more about where those rates are today as we move into this discussion. First, let's just talk about kind of some definitions. And by all means, you can look this stuff up on treasurydirect.gov, treasurydirect.gov. It's a website where you can read about all the different types of bonds and, and other items that the government sells on their website. What is a Series I savings bond? A savings bond that earns interest based on combining a fixed rate and an inflation rate for up to 30 years. There's two key components there. There's there's a fixed rate and an inflation rate. And twice a year, uh, the inflation rates are set. And those two rate components, one is the fixed rate and the other is the inflation rate, together are considered uh, sometimes mentioned as a composite interest rate, which combines the two separate rates. A fixed rate of return which remains the same throughout the life of the I-bond is that first component. So this will be the same rate for all 30 years. Today, that rate is zero. So that's a zero fixed rate. And to that, you incorporate or add an inflation rate, which is set every six months. The inflation rate, as defined on the website, is a variable semi-annual inflation rate based on changes in the consumer price index, for all urban consumers. The Bureau of the Fiscal Service announces the rates each May and November. The semi-annual inflation rate announced in May is the change between the CPI for urban consumers figures from the preceding September and March. The inflation rate announced in November is the change between the CPI urban rates figures from the preceding March and September. They take these data points and they reset the rates every six months. 
the rates are constant for that six month period. No matter where you buy it during those six months, that's the rate you're gonna get. And you will have that rate for six months and then it will reset to the next rate for the next six months. Just to give you some ballpark numbers, I mentioned earlier, 3.54% was the rate that was set in May of 2021. And that was zero for the fixed rate and 3.54% for the inflation rate. Then last November in 2021, as we all know, inflation started to really show up. The rates were reset again. At this point, the rate moved to 7.12% plus zero for the fixed rate. So a 7.12%. At that point, there were numerous articles in the media, all the financial bloggers and vloggers and everyone out on YouTube really talked this up significantly when the rate moved up to 7.12. And then this past May 2022, which is the month we're in right now, the rate moved to 9.62%, the inflation component, plus a zero fixed rate. So if you were to go ahead and buy today an I-bond, you would get 9.62% interest rate yield. That's a huge number. Uh, you all can look at your uh, bank accounts or CD rates for a year, and I can assure you, you can't get anywhere close to 9.62%. And keep in mind that while the inflation rate is positive today, it could be negative. But when I look back at the data, since 1998, rates only went negative two times, and that was in 2009 and in 2015. In most cases, inflation is a positive rate number on these instruments. The historic table of rates will be included in your show notes. You might want to click on it just for grins, you know, think back. And remember, hindsight's always 2020 vision. Uh, so you can kind of pick the peaks when you look back. And let's say when you look back in May of 2000 through October of 2000, during that six-month period, if you were buying an I-bond, your combination rates would have been a fixed rate of 3.6% and an inflation rate of 3.89%. So your combined rate was 749 if you roll your clock forward to today, that base rate of 3.6 and the new inflation rate of 9.62 would generate a composite rate of 13.39%. That's a huge rate on that bond. How would you like a 13% or more than a 13% bond that's guaranteed by the United States government in your portfolio? Well, like I said, hindsight's 2020. It does cause you to think a little bit about these type of instruments and what time can do with rates and, and how much they can move one way or the other. But I will say the, the fixed rate component, the last time it was above zero was November of 2019 through April of 2020. During that six month period, the fixed rate was 0.2% or 20 basis points in financial rate lingo. A basis point is equal to one one hundredth of 1%. Since then, we've only had 0% fixed rates. And I will say the government will not go below 0% on these bonds. So there's a floor of 0%. Again, I'll put the rates in the um, show notes, the chart that you can look back at the historic rates for these I-bonds. Back to today, 
If you purchase a bond during a six-month window, your bond will receive the current rate for six months. So let's say today's rate is 9.62%. If you buy that bond anytime from May 1st through October 31st, you will get 9.62% for six months. It doesn't matter when during the period you buy the bond, you're going to get that rate for six months. So if you wait until July 1st and buy it, you'll get 9.62% till the end of December. So for six month period. And then at the end of December in January, it will reset to whatever the rate is that's announced in November. The rates change every May and November. They were reset at that point in time. And that's the rate for that six-month period. Anytime you buy during the six months, you get that rate. And you get it for six more months. The other thing about these I-bonds is they provide uh, different ways to recognize the income. There are some ways to report the income uh, every year that you earn for the interest. Or you can record all of the interest at the time the bond is cashed out. That's probably more typical. There are several key points you need to know about buying an I-savings bond. I'm going to call them I-bonds, series I-savings bond. It's all the same in this podcast. If I say an I-bond, I mean a series I-savings bond issued on the Treasury Direct website. Here are some of the key points. You have to hold it at least a year. You can't buy it to get the 9.62% and then decide in a few months you need the money. You've got to really leave it alone for at least a year. The second point is if you cash out in less than five years, you forfeit the last three months of interest. So for instance, if you hold the bond for 36 months, you're only going to get 33 months of interest, the first 33. You forfeit the last three. That's the way the bonds work if you liquidate it in less than five years. The third point is when the bond is 30 years old or at its maturity date, it no longer earns interest. So there's no benefit to holding this 30-year bond for 50 years. Actually, it gets flat lines at the total number that it's accumulated in 30 years, and it doesn't grow after that. And as you all know, if you're experiencing inflation, that really means your money is shrinking if you're not getting interest on it in terms of what it can buy. It sounds pretty good, right? So you want to buy some. There are also other key points you need to know. How do you buy a Series I savings bond or I bond for short? You go to the treasurydirect.gov site and you research these I bonds. You need to read up on them, decide if it makes sense for you, all those kind of things. Remember, I'm not making your decisions for your investment portfolio. Those are your decisions, and I'm not liable for anything you might decide to do based on information you learned on this podcast. But remember, we are here to educate, so let's go deeper into this. You go to the treasurydirect.gov site. You read up on these I-bonds. You say, I want to keep moving forward. The next step is to create an account. Your account will be set up and linked to a bank account that the transactions will utilize. So when you purchase a bond, the funds will be drafted from your account into the treasury, and that bond will show up on your treasury direct account after you purchase it. Conversely, when you redeem that bond or cash it out, the funds will be deposited in your bank account. Now, there's another, another key point here is there are limits to how much of these bonds you can buy each year. Each individual can buy up to $10,000 as a maximum limit 
per person, per calendar year. So that's $10,000, for instance, for me, $10,000 for my wife. If my children were buying these bonds, it's $10,000 for each one of them, but they have to be held in that primary person's name and with their tax ID or social security number. The only way to buy more than $10,000 is to utilize an IRS refund to purchase a paper bond up to an additional $5,000. This might be the only good reason to ever overpay your federal income taxes. But when you file your tax return, you would include IRS Form 8888. That's four eights. And purchase uh, as little as $50 paper bond with a refund or as much as $5,000 in a multiple of $50 increments. So if you wanted to do $50, you could do $50. If you wanted to do $250, you could do $250. And then the balance would just be refunded or applied to the next year's return, however you fill out the form. Um, okay, minimums. You have to buy at least a $25 denomination electronically. You can't buy a $17 bond, but you can buy a $25 bond and you can buy a $25 and three cents. Uh, it's up to the penny, but it has to be at least $25. And for the paper bonds that you would get with the refund, you have to buy a minimum of $50 worth. So those are the minimums, $50 on the paper, $25 on electronic bonds. Okay, you might want to do a lump sum purchase where you log in and decide uh, the amount you want to buy and you buy it all at once and, and that's it. That's a simple way to do it. That's what I use. That's an easy method. Frankly, it's just, to me, one of the simplest one and done for the year. Get in, buy your bond, and, and, and you're done. Another way you might want to do it is with the payroll savings plan. Similar to like a direct deposit you make into your checking or your savings account, you can purchase I-bonds directly by a payroll deposit. There are more instructions on the Treasury Direct site if you want to set this up if you're an individual or you're an employer and you want to know more about how you can do this for your employees. Uh, if you just want to better understand how to set it up, please go to treasurydirect.gov and you can read all about it. If I still had W-2 income, this may be a great way to automate the purchases. The other nice thought uh, on the backside, when you sell each of these bonds as they mature at different times, you could use them to meet expenses periodically in the future, say when you're funding a child's education or your own retirement expenses. Another way to purchase them is to schedule the purchases. I was really impressed by this capability on the Treasury Direct site. Uh, you can set up recurring options to buy every week. Uh, you can set them up to buy bi-weekly, which is every other week or monthly or bi-monthly, again, that would be every other month, or quarterly, or semi-annually, that's every six months, or annually. So if you want to just set it and forget it, and you've got a stable bank account that it's linked to, if you said, hey, I just want to buy $10,000 a year on January 1st, you can just set it up and do it. Another way is to schedule your own dates. Similar to the recurring purchases, if you just want to go in there and schedule out five dates to buy in the future or five birthday purchases in the next five birthdays, or you want to set it up to be monthly, but you don't want to buy in June and November because you have other large expenses like two component property tax payments we have here in Texas, you know, you can pay half in June and half in November. You might want to say, I want to buy a monthly bond 
in every month except June and November. And so you, you know, calculate how much your limits are and how you want to split it out. And then you set it up in advance and those purchases take place on their scheduled dates. So basically, in summary, you can automate and utilize the site to buy whenever you want at the amounts you want to buy, as long as you stay within those limits we discussed earlier. Another thing you really need to know is ownership. Before you purchase a bond, you'll need to decide how it will be owned. Will it be a sole owner or will there be a primary owner and a secondary owner? Think about who the beneficiary would need to be. In our case, I set up my I-bonds as myself as the first name registrant in terms used on the site and my wife as a second name registrant, payable on death. So if I die, my bonds are transferred to her. And if she dies, her bonds are transferred to me. Now, you can set it up any way you like. If you want those bonds to go to a child, you can name them as a second name registrant. You also need a tax ID number for each owner that is listed. In my case, you know, that's a social security number. There's another option you don't want to think about, and that relates to gifts. You can set up a gift box in your account and purchase these bonds for someone else. So if you wanted to say buy for your children, you could buy a bond. Let's say you want to buy a $1,000 bond for one of your children. You can buy it. It goes into your gift box and it sets the rate at the time you're buying those gift bonds. So for instance, if I wanted to buy a gift bond and lock in that 9.62% rate for one of my children, I could go in there anytime between now and the end of October and buy that gift bond and put it in my uh, gift box. Now, to transfer that gift bond, it's a different step. Uh, you'll need their tax ID, and they will need to set up a Treasury Direct account under their own name and give you that Treasury Direct account number for you to transfer the bonds from your gift box into their account. Once again, remember, the bond rate is set at the time you bond, buy the bond for the gift. So if you want to lock in 9.62%, you buy the bond between now and the end of October, the gift bond will sit in your gift box. And at the time the gift bond is transferred is when it accounts against the recipient's limit for their calendar year. So, for instance, if I was to buy a gift bond today and not transfer it until 2023, it wouldn't count against the limit that my child has for 2022. So, if they're out buying bonds and they bought $10,000 already, I wouldn't want to transfer it till 2023. So, they didn't exceed the $10,000 limit. So, you might want to coordinate this. Uh, with your recipients if you plan to give one as a gift, just to be sure that if they are in fact buying $10,000 worth of I-bonds, you don't cause them to exceed the limits. You may want to rethink if you need to give them a gift if they're buying $10,000 worth of I-bonds, but that's totally up to you. Just a side note. Some uh, vloggers and YouTube content creators get really creative and talk a lot about the ways that this can be manipulated. For instance, they buy bonds for their spouse as a gift, even though their spouse has already bought $10,000 worth in the current year, and they hold it in limbo in this gift box where it's not here or there. It's not mine and it's not theirs. It's just in the gift box, and they don't count against the giver or the receiver's limits 
until they're transferred, and then they will count against the receiver's limits. I am by no means suggesting anyone try to game the system or milk the last possibility out of the scenario. Uh, Just that it's best to clearly understand the rules and the complications. And when you play with fire, sometimes you get burned. So if you don't dot all the I's and cross all the T's, don't ask me what happened. Remember, I'm not giving you financial advice. That's your decision and for you to consult a professional for any questions you have. All right, let's move on. That's a lot of information. So how do you know these are something that might fit in your portfolio? Why would you want to consider buying an I-bond? Well, first of all, does your strategic asset allocation include fixed income components? For instance, uh, most asset allocations include components for equities or stocks, also fixed income, and then cash. Well, if you have a need to allocate more money to cash, you certainly wouldn't want to tie it up into uh, an I-bond. But if you have a fixed income, let's say you're, you're buying 70% equities, 20% fixed income, and you want to keep 10% in cash. Well, that 20% fixed income, I-bonds would fit along in that category. Consider I-bonds if it makes sense for you in that target allocation that you're making. Another one is, uh, does your diversification goals within fixed income include inflation-protected components? For instance, if you're holding the Vanguard BND fund uh, ETF, okay, there's no specific inflation index bonds in that portfolio. If you hold VTIP, VTIP, the Vanguard Short-Term Inflation-Protected Index Fund ETF shares, you already have an exposure to inflation-protected financial instruments. Another thing to consider is if you routinely rebalance your portfolio, these bonds may not be sellable. For instance, if you need to rebalance because equities are rayed down and you need to sell fixed-income bonds and rebalance equities up to the 70% number in our earlier example, and it's been less than 12 months since you bought these bonds, or less than five years if you don't want the three-year penalty, you wouldn't be able to utilize this in your rebalancing calculation to reshuffle equity money from I-bond. So consider these as a longer-term component of your allocation. And Perhaps sell a bond mutual fund or ETF to accomplish the goals of rebalancing and let your I-bonds remain in the account for a longer period of time. Now, I've been interested in I-bonds since the coverage started in May of 2021 when the rate was set to an astronomical 3.54%. If you remember, we were all getting like 0.01% on our savings account balances at the times. Anytime somebody saw a 3.54% rate on something you only had to hold one year, even if you forfeit three months interest, it was a great return for that kind of money. That is money that you left in one place for one year, like a one-year CD. When the rate went up to 7.12% in November, it really piqued my interest. And at that time, we made our first purchases. Then again, In January, because there's a limit every year, I was able to buy additional bonds. 
The November purchases uh, were reset to 9.62% this month, or May of 2022, if you're listening to this uh, podcast much later. And the January purchases will reset to the 9.62% in July. Many bloggers publish content as to whether you should buy at the old rate before the new rate reset and push out the tail, or if you will, the future periods, because remember, you're, you're going to hold each bond for six months at the current rate when you buy it, and for the next rate when it resets. So in that month, you would push out the tail with higher rates as inflation would decline and the inflation rate would drop on those bonds. It makes little difference to me. And I like to employ my half-right, half-wrong philosophy If you think it makes a difference, buy half of it before the change and half of it after. Uh, You'll be right at least with half of your money that you put into the I-bonds if there's such a thing as being right on half of your purchase when the wrong part is a bond that's 9.62%. I don't think you can lose either way. In my case, I'd already bought in January, so I couldn't buy at 9.62% in May when the reset took place, but my previous November bonds reset to the new rate in May. And my January bonds will reset in July. So I'm not going to miss out on that great rate. Uh, it's solid for six months. I will get it for six months. And these these bonds, remember, have a 30-year maturity. So you don't want to just leave them out there for 50 years, uh, but they will be reset every six months to a different rate up until that 30-year maturity. Okay, well, what are some other factors that you might want to consider if you're making a purchase decision for I-bonds? One point you might want to realize is you're going to have yet another account to keep track of. You're going to have an account. It exists in Treasury Direct. To my knowledge, there's no way to link other applications to your Treasury Direct account and have those balances show up. So it is one more thing you'll have to have records for. But I don't think it's a significant issue. Um, Again, I've only had my account for the last seven months, let's say. So we'll see how it works. I haven't had to recognize any income. Uh, I have pulled up the account and learned that they show the balances net of the three-month penalty if it still applies to the age of your bond. So you can pull it up and see what your current value is if you were to liquidate it, and it already pulls out the interest for the last three months if it's less than five years old. Another point you might want to think about is you need to let your financial advisor, if you have one, uh, know about these holdings in a Treasury Direct account. They would need to know for purposes of making sure they understand that's part of your allocation. And if they're doing any rebalancing, they know that you're holding these I-savings bonds. Another point is if you're extremely risk-averse, meaning you do not like risk, the fact that these are U.S. government bonds, the government stands behind these bonds, and you will rest easy at night knowing that the United States of America is going to pay these bonds off when they mature or when you liquidate them. Another thing to consider is when you're in the drawdown stage, these will have to be sold uh, separately from other assets and other investment accounts. So, for instance, if you hold a Vanguard account or different types of accounts under Vanguard, you can have income spun out of that Vanguard account environment uh, into your bank account every month to pay for your expenses. 
this is a different item where you'll have to sell these I-bonds um, within that Treasury Direct account. Another point to think about is liquidity. If you need your money back, and I've said this before, but I want to be crystal clear. If you need your money back over the short term, less than a year, these are not for you. Or at least the portion that you need back over the next year is not, is not a good idea to put in these I-bonds. An emergency fund can't be accessed if it's locked up in an I-bond for at least 12 months. So this is probably not where you want to put emergency fund money. It may make sense to buy and hold it for 18 months and then liquidate it. So if you have a horizon or a need for money that's 18 months out, this might make a lot of sense. Because number one, you're getting a great rate for most of that period. You're only going to forfeit the last three months of interest, which we don't even know what those interest rates are going to set to 15, 16 months down the road. We don't know what the new interest rate is going to be. But you will receive a good rate. Uh, and you will compound it at least once um, or twice. Every six months, the balance kind of gets compounded. So the interest you earned over the first six months that you hold it gets added to the value. And then that compounded amount, and let's say, let's say you buy a $10,000 bond and it earns interest, that interest will be added to the $10,000. So let's say just dollars then will be used as the base to calculate how much it earns for the next six months. So that 10.3 will be earning at the new rate. That liquidity horizon is important to think about. I think that's about it. So just let's just recap. I-bonds, series I-bonds are issued by the United States government. You can only buy them on the treasurydirect.gov website. They are maturity of 30-year bonds. They're based on an interest rate that has two components, a fixed rate and an inflation rate. And you have to hold them at least 12 months, but you can liquidate them in less than five years with a three-month interest penalty. The last three months would be forfeited. And after five years, there is no penalty. So if you plan to hold this money for over five years and you want to hedge against inflation rates, these might make a lot of sense because they are indexed to the inflation rates as it's changed every six months. I think these things are something that you should consider. Whether you buy them, it's up to you. But I will say it's something that you should at least be aware of. I will also say and warn you that the treasurydirect.gov website is the most clunky website I think I've ever used. Well, it, it just reminds me of a website from the mid-90s when the internet was young and web designers, you know, really hadn't got the GUI interfaces all lined up. It's very textual. Um, it is functional. When you enter your password, uh, you enter it by clicking the numbers and letters on a virtual keyboard. Even though it's important to set up a password with upper and lowercase letters, when you enter the password with the virtual keyboard, you can't enter a uppercase or a lowercase letter. So it's just letters and numbers. You click on each of those letters and you hit submit and then your password goes through. It's functional. And I think the government will probably update that website at some point in time and make it a little more user friendly. You can look at your holdings. You can see your gift box. You can see each bond. You can see the history on those bonds. 
When I originally set up my bond, I didn't set it up with my wife as a co-owner. I went back and changed that after the fact, and you can see that in the history of the bond. You can see when it was purchased and when the ownership changed and all the other changes that were made are going to show up in that log. So I think it's very functional. It's just extremely clunky and probably not interfaceable to any other website you have or financial accumulator. If you're using, for instance, personal capital, I don't know that they have a means to bring that data in. I just added it as a manual account in my personal capital, and it gets aggregated in my totals. Every six months or so, I go in and look and see what the interest added to it is, and then I can update that periodically in personal capital so it does calculate a net worth that includes the uh, compounded interest that is now part of the balance. Think about it. I-bonds. It's a possibility. Well, I think we'll wrap up with that point for today. Uh, remember, 9.62% is the current rate on those I-bonds. You may want to go out there and look at it a bit and get you some. Well, with that, we're out of here. This is Lambo, the Phi Lighter. Nothing's far away. Nothing's far away. Nothing's near. Nothing's far away. Nothing's near. Another day, another way. Another day, another way. Hold me, hold me in the sun, in the rain. Episode 14 was recorded May 24th, 2022 at the Firelighter Studio at our home base here in College Station, Texas. Welcome, Welcome to, to the After, after Show. show. You know, today for the after show, I'm just going to take a segment that I clipped right out of the podcast, and I thought, what in the world were you thinking? You are so far down a rabbit hole, people are not even going to know why you're there. It has nothing to do with I-bonds. I just got lost in Y2K, and it was only because I looked at the chart and saw what the rates were at the time in the year 2000 and realized that interest rates, inflation, everything else was kind of crazy all at that point in time, and it generated some cool rates for the I-bonds if you had enough sense to buy them in 2000. Anyway, I'll uh, leave it there, and we'll let you hear it as it was originally recorded. You know, like, let's go on a tangent tour right now in our imaginations and think a little bit about this. Uh, imagine with me uh, Y2K. You know, that's the year 2000 for, for some of you younger folks. Y2K had a lot of excitement around it. Everyone was worried that their computer systems were going to fail and planes would drop out of the sky. And all along the late 90s, working up to this date, companies were stockpiling inventory because they believed that the supply chain would break down and manufacturers would fail and all kinds of machine failures would take place. So they wanted to make sure they had plenty of inventory. And all the companies started dissecting their computer systems to identify every possible program and test it and verify the functionality if the clock was set to a time in the future, like June of 2000 or 2001. 
And you might ask yourself, why is that? You know, I know some of my younger listeners think this is goofy, but in the simplest terms, many computer programs used a two-character date for the year. Because think about it. These things were written in the 70s and the 80s, and people thought they'd be used forever. Who could imagine doing any math on something that would need four digits? Well, <laughs> as we approach the year 2000, using these calculations, uh, you know, they work fine if you were subtracting 88 from 98 to get a result of, say, 10 years. But what happens when you subtract 88 from 01? Boom, <laughs> you get a negative 87. Well, you don't have to look far to realize when your computer does some math and comes back with a negative 87 result and calculates whatever it is your program is designed to do, you're going to get results that are not what you expect. So these programs had to be modified to utilize four-year math on the dates. There were a lot of different workarounds and programmers uh, can solve things, you know, in a lot of different ways. But in a nutshell, that was the excitement of the Y2K change. Many software publishers released patches that were quickly applied and tested and verified and then moved into production to solve the problem. However, if you had any in-house programs and it was very typical back in the you know 80s and 90s to to write your own programs for systems they had to be dissected and fixed internally and that was a huge distraction for the IT teams and the users that were testing and verifying the fixes but in a nutshell it was pure chaos and it was everyone's problem not just the computer guys well let's let's roll back into 2022 um, and kind of in that tour of the past, but wow, I can't believe how lost we got on that tangent. You know, I really wanted to talk more about the Y2K, uh, just economics and how so many companies ramped up production to prepare for that unknown that was going to take place when the calendar changed from 1999 to 2000. And so many companies ordered so many goods that some companies saw it as a demand improvement and actually ramped up and built larger facilities, new plants even, to meet demand. And then in 2000, the demand just vaporized. Everyone continued to operate. They didn't have this Armageddon event and suddenly people are looking out in their stock in their uh, facilities and realizing we don't need anything you know we 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 got to use up what we have and get down to optimal uh, quantities of inventory and consequently it really put a lot of pain in the system for people that were producing these longer lead time goods suddenly they didn't have any orders it was just a shock it was something that uh, I lived through. I was around back then, and uh, I can tell you even our company did the same thing. It's not something you want to relive, but it is one of those significant events, kind of like the massive COVID shock that our system's experiencing right now, uh, where you have you know, demand vaporize for many, many, many months, several quarters, and then the recovery started taking place, and then demand is high, and the goods haven't got back online. So 
uh, prices have gotten way high. Thus, you have the inflation situation. So it is really interesting to step back a little bit and think about the dynamics that are going on. Uh, For me, I have real clear memories of Y2K. uh, But for all of you, certainly today, you have a great you know, memory here that you're going to capture and you will compare everything that happens in your future back to this COVID experience. Um, It kind of sets the bar, the high bar, the low bar, the fact that you can be surprised and caught on your heels, uh, not able to back up and react. Um, Thought I'd throw in a sports sports term there for some of those listeners. I know they're sports nuts. Um, Anyway, Y2K was really wild, uh, and and the COVID shock that we're going through right now uh, will also pass, and we'll look back on it and say, "Wow, that was an incredible, uh, you know, volatile order of magnitude event." And hopefully, we won't see another one of these uh, in any you know near term future. Um, as an early retiree, I certainly hope that. Uh, we don't see these kind of surprises on a regular basis. I might be rethinking that uh, that job. We'll let you go with that. That's probably the after show that uh, we're going to have today. I think that uh, that story in itself uh, kind of gives you a little window into the past and, and realize that Uh, These major events are going to happen from time to time. I hope you've got an investment policy. I hope you're not in panic mode. Uh, I have not even pulled up my accounts today. Um, I try not to look at them every day uh, during these meltdown periods, particularly, um, and realize that if anything, if you need to consider uh, your allocation and and you want to increase your exposure to the market, you know, there's always a time that to feather money back in when things are bad. Um, Anyway, this is Lambo the Firelighter. I hope you're having a great week and you get off to an awesome summer. We are out.